Hello and welcome to the Quest for More Money, a podcast about movie franchises. I am one of your co-hosts. I am Mitch. I'm Kevin. I'm Alexandria. And we are without Vincent today. He is off doing bigger and better things, working on a TV show actually. Mm-hmm. But I know he wishes he could be here. He really loves this movie. It's a lot about this movie that he always talks and references. He he loves how meta it is. Um, I think he actually. I don't know if he likes it more than the first Scream movie. I think, but he, I think, I think he it's his favorite. I, he's, he's I don't said want to that speak before. for him, but I think it might be his favorite sequel of yeah. the franchise at the very least. So it's a, he's bummed he can't be here, but he's definitely going to be back for episode three so we could talk about that train wreck of a movie. That I'm really excited to talk about that one. But first, got to talk about Scream 2, which is a movie that I really like, actually. I think it's really fun. And what do you think? Yeah, I like it, but I like Scream 1 a lot more, I would say. I, well, yeah, I think the first Scream is just so ingenious in the way it balanced. Maybe it's, I think we touched on it a little bit, but like maybe it's a little bit dated in how meta it is, but I think it's, for the work it was, especially at the time, it was groundbreaking and it's it's one of my favorite horror movies by far. Um, but I think this is a pretty good sequel. I don't think it's better than the first one, but I think it's sort of, it makes some new ground. It goes in some new directions that I really liked. It's interesting because I actually thought that this was, in some ways, a better movie than Scream was. Mm-hmm. Um, there are definitely parts about Scream that I I like simply because it was a, it generated a lot of the tropes that are today kind of taken for granted. But the thing about Scream too that I thought was more interesting was just the way they chose to reveal the. Um, the killers and the reason the, the reason that the killers were doing what they were doing uh, toward the end. So I, I just yeah, it was a it was a much more interesting movie to me. Okay, and that's totally fair. You're allowed to have that opinion, even if I'm wrong. <laughs> even if you're completely and totally incorrect, it's nice to have different opinions coming <laughs> okay. together. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you very much. No, I I think this is really fun. So 1997, Scream Two. It's two years after the events of the first film. Sydney is now in college. Randy is in college with her. She is dating Jerry O'Connell, whose best friend is Timothy Oliphant. Um, Oliphant. The guy from Santa Clarita Diet. There you go. <laughs> or Deadwood, depending on how Justified. old you are. <laughs> well, yes. he was in Deadwood, too. Yes, he was. Yeah. Yes. So, Wes Craven's back to direct. Kevin Williamson's here to write. Nev Campbell and David Arquette are also back, so pretty good cast. Really good So cast. is Courtney Cox. Did I not say Courtney Cox? You did not say Courtney Cox. Oof. Wow. How can we forget Sorry. Gail? Sorry, Courtney. How can we forget Gail Weatherstorm? It's okay. It's all right. Who I actually like a lot more in this one than I do in the first one. I think she has a nice. I think she has a nicer character arc. She gets a little bit of development in this I one. I think so. Yeah. Compared to the first one where she's just there to be mean. But let's, let's head into our very first section. Let's head into the Woodsboro Wisdom section. How was the movie made? The backstory of the movie, all that fun jazz. So this movie began principal photography only six months after the first Scream movie was yeah. released. In 96. So that's less than a, less than a year. Um, that's crazy. Well, I don't... That's I, a quick turnaround. 
I, I quickly, did they make the decision to, to make this movie before the first one came out or like immediately after the first one came out and it had been such a success? I think it was a pretty quick turnaround. I think that the, after the word of mouth of the first movie, mm-hmm. by the time 97 rolled around, I think they were, okay. they were ready to go on it. Um, so they knew that there was a market for, for something that was as trope breaking as this was and decided that they were going to you know try to continue this arc kind of like they you know well, another series we'll get into i'm sure at some point which is airplane you know, <laughs> oh we got yeah well because uh... i think that there's a there, there there was an identification that there was this and not because people knew there was a gap in this type of movie before but this movie came and, and started to expose a lot of things that people took for granted previously with horror films and so now all of a sudden because everybody identified with them because they were all kind of socially understood, you've got a platform to be able to create another movie. I don't know if I like your idea of, of Airplane, because I think that Airplane is just a straight-up screwball comedy. It, it it's, is. It's there intentionally only to make fun of things, versus Scream and, and its sequels, mm-hmm. with the exception of the third one, which I think stand on their own as like really good slasher films, really decent horror movies. And then also really fun meta. Like, the comedy isn't the whole thing. It's just part of it on top of it. That meta humor is just a piece of it. It's not all of it. Versus Airplane, which is brilliant. One of the funniest movies ever made. Never get an argument for me on that. But it's like similar to Hot Shots, you know, where it's just there to be a parody. Okay. And I don't know. I don't think that that's Scream's only purpose. You think? Yeah, I definitely get scared actually watching Scream. At least the first two so it's a horror combined with that comedy it's very subtle comedy though i think some of it is subtle and i think some of it's very over the top meta like when he's doing the rule in the in the original one when he does the rules for the yeah the rules to survive a horror movie against the backdrop of halloween um and then in the opening of scream 2 i would say that's a little over the top a little bit yeah (laughs) but it's also my favorite part right but I also think that if you look at it from just a purely film and film franchise perspective, the idea that you were going to go and take something that people always took for granted, you're going to expose it on screen, and then you're going to start to create a series from it that's going to allow you to explore all of those tropes and see where they lead a film franchise, I think is kind of interesting. I think a lot of I think a lot of film franchises were based on that. Indiana Jones was certainly based on that idea of going back to 1930 serials and looking yeah. at how you can take that forward with what you can do today with movie making. And can't wait to talk about that yeah. franchise on its own, but yeah. definitely to its detriment by oh, I, taking on the Christmas. No, I, abs- I absolutely agree. I mean, there there has to come, become a point in time where you know, okay, we we've. We've wrung the we've wrung the, the the rag out on this. We need to you know we need to stop. So let's talk about one of the big things about this movie, which is that it was one of the first scripts to get leaked online, mm-hmm. which is interesting because I, I feel like it's definitely not something that I would have thought about for a '90s movie. But '97 that is internet. That, that is the internet era. Yeah. Um, so one of the extras leak it, and it had to get. Pretty much entirely rewritten, and a bunch of the pages were actually not completed until the day it was filmed. I think that that is 
really interesting because it's it's a surprisingly cohesive movie. Considering for, for a movie that had to, to be rewritten yeah. and, and some of it's filmed the day of, I mean, you hear horror stories in Hollywood about movies that are finished the day of on set or rewrites. Mm. The Incredible Hulk, the which one? The the MCU version, which oh, Edward okay. Norton, where Edward Norton was like rewriting scripts, you know, pieces the day of. Like that movie ends up being a disaster, obviously. But this one surprisingly cohesive. Well, I think that the script, the, the person that was doing the rewrites was the guy who had it in his it had the vision to begin with. Kevin Williamson, yeah. right? Versus an actor who was just trying to take control of the script so that he could showcase what he thought the character could actually be and do, and that you know, you can't let the uh, the fox run the hen house. That's yeah. That so wasn't they, a good idea. Well, I think it's one of Marvel's only regrets, probably. Yeah, because you know what, of all the characters in the MCU. That's one of the one of the few that actually they kind of that you actually need to reboot that one to go fall in line with what they've done now with the character and the other films. But that's a podcast for another time. So, so security got tightened on set. Everyone had to sign non disclosure agreements. A lot of the movie underwent reshoots, and the cast wasn't identified of the killer's identity until the last days of principal photography. And they didn't receive the last 10 pages of the shooting script and until it was time to do those scenes. It's pretty... That's pretty tight security. <laughs> well, and... Not really giving your actors a ton of time to rehearse your scenes. Yeah, but it's interesting that they filmed the end of the movie at the end of the shooting schedule versus in a lot of cases where it's all very disjointed and not, you know, it's not done in sequence. Or it's not, you know, you don't usually save the end to the end of the shooting schedule. Yeah. You know, so it's interesting that they did it that way. So in that original script, I found this online, and I'm not 100% sure how true all of this is, but it seemed pretty in-depth, and I definitely wanted to share and get your get your thoughts on all of these. Apparently in the original script, Dewey was transferred himself, he transferred himself from Woodsboro Police to the security staff on campus so he could be closer to Sydney. That's just creepy. That, that's a creepy film. I actually, I think, I think that that's kind of nice. on brand for his character. Yeah, I could see him doing that. That's very dewy, very kind, very... Creepy. I actually would have liked that. I think that would have been... I don't think it's creepy. But Randy was originally Gail's new cameraman. Which I think actually would have made a ton of sense considering how meta and into movies Randy is. And then, you know, he's a film school student in the movie, so... I liked the guy that they had as her cameraman, though, because he kept referencing what had happened to her first cameraman. Oh, yeah. You know, so I don't want to die. Yeah, throughout the first, you know, two-thirds of the movie, he was going and constantly referring to the poor guy who got killed in the first one. And, yeah, that was that was actually kind of a, a, a cute running nice gag. Well, yeah, it was, it was nice to see that running through the... At least until he got whacked. So, I mean, it was good. Did he die? Yeah. That's right, but it wasn't yeah. for a while. It wasn't for a while. It was like You're expecting two... him to die like pretty early on yeah, because he of the, yeah. the way it's shot. But So Derek, Jerry O'Connell, was the film school student who shooted the documentary, not Mickey, who's Timothy Oliphant. Gotcha. Which, okay. All right, whatever. I don't know how big of a change that is. Debbie, who is really Mrs. Loomis, but she comes and portrays herself as a reporter, right. was apparently way more of an aggressive reporter, even more aggressive than Gail. And at one point she says, uh, she asks Sydney if she's the one who just finally snaps and is the murderer, which prompts Gail to just punch her in the face. 
I, seems I like to how, be a pretty weak response to finding out that she's a killer, but okay. I think it's a, I think it's a interesting take on the original punching scene from the mm-hmm. first one. But I don't know. Already... I like how they played Debbie very scaled down, though, or Mrs. Loomis is. She really fades into the backdrop. Maybe they underuse her because you kind of forget about her by the end of the movie. Which was probably the intent. What do you think was the point? I mean, it would make sense, but, but she like was she very. She was very June Cleaver like, you know. She's very, she's a real milk toast in the beginning of the movie, where she's, you know, she's like looking up to Gail, and she has all those scenes where she's like, you know, asking, asking yeah. yeah, how would I do this or how? She, and then you realize at the end of the film, if you go back, that really what she's asking for is how do I need to act like a reporter? Mm-hmm. Because I'm really not a reporter, you know. I'm I'm really That's a, true. you know, I'm a mom, so. Yeah, and I, I like I like how that was played. I mm-hmm. think that was one of the stronger parts about the movie. So I don't know if I would have liked all of a sudden she's just. I don't. I don't think being way more aggressive would have helped. I also think it wouldn't have made the, the reveal in the end right. as impactful. Right. So. Good choice. The scene where Sydney slaps Gale never happens. I mean, that ends up becoming a meta joke of the Scream series in and of itself with this movie. But I don't know if you really need that one. Is Courtney Cox punched or slapped in every one of these movies? Probably. Yeah, I would think yeah. so. It's a cool. Well, a, you know what? Sorry, we'll Courtney, but that's a cool running joke. <laughs> we will have to find out in Scream Three. <laughs> every, every movie, somebody's slapping her. That's that, that's just wrong. <laughs> so, Mickey is the person in the cafeteria during the cringiest scene of this whole fucking movie, and I will, I will. Say that no matter what. That that super cringy scene in the cafeteria. Um, Mickey is the person who's singing, not Jerry O'Connell's character. You mean doing the Top Gun throwback? Well, we're singing on top of the cafeteria yeah. tables. And originally the song was I Will Always Love You by Whitney Houston. Yeah. yeah that was an unfortunate choice. But... <laughs> so Mickey was the boyfriend originally? No. Or was it some weird Mickey, love triangle? No, Mickey wasn't the boyfriend. I I don't know. That's really all that's out there. Okay. Hmm. It's possible. Kevin Williams, do us a favor. Call in and let us know. Yeah, Kevin Williamson, if you ever want to be on this podcast, we are happy Please. to accommodate you. <laughs> we um, would love to. We would love to talk to you and get some of your thoughts on direction and choice. And then I have some questions about that. Uh, I know what you did last summer series. Yeah, but that's another another time. <laughs> <laughs> so the killers in the original script apparently were Derek, Jerry O'Connell, Haley, who was Sydney's roommate, and Mrs. Loomis still. Four killers. Three. Derek, Haley, and, and Mrs. Loomis. Okay. Three. I, Counting's I, hard. It is. I have a real hard time with three killers. I it's Unbelievable. Three too many. <laughs> to me, it's unbelievable. Those three killers are what's really unbelievable about this movie, <laughs> where a man <laughs> dresses up as a ghost face yeah, and wow. follows this poor woman around to multiple cities. I feel like three, like they would have all had different motives, and yeah. they all would have not been on the same page the whole time. I think two works, because they, because it's contrasting motives that come together. You know. The yeah, I get the whole enemy is my friend kind of thing. Yeah, I get the whole in cold blood thing, but at the same time, I also am like, you know, killing by committee is not. Well, it doesn't work out for anyone. No, it, it's just it just doesn't end well. So, not that any any of these should, but I just you know, it's three would have been way too many. So Mrs. Loomis ends up shooting Derek and Haley. 
Which, of as course, we, she as we all wanted to do at some <laughs> point in this movie. But then she gets stabbed by Cotton Weary um, before she can go and kill Sydney and Gale. Then Cottonly has this random Cotton has this random change of heart and decides to get even for both Sydney and for Gale, and kills them both. <laughs> Kevin well, Williamson stopped writing there, but he left some of the notes in that version of the script that said that's all I've written so far, and it just said that that's how the story's supposed to end. <laughs> It was it was intended to end the franchise in his mind, even though he had the outlines for the ideas for three movies originally. So I don't know again how a hundred percent accurate that is, but it would have been interesting if they gone that direction. I really like the direction I, they went in. I think yeah. this is a way better movie than that, though. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it was it's funny how a bad thing turns into a good thing in this yeah. case. Yeah. Random fun fact: neither of you found it fun when I told you before, but I I just really think it's cool. That Robert Rodriguez directs the scenes of the stab, the movie inside the movie. I just think it's really cool. I also really like Robert Rodriguez, though. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> this did not change my life in any way. So. so, Wes Craven submitted this eight different times to the MPAA, but there was actually a method to his madness. He didn't want to have all of the problems that he had with the first screen, which we had talked about pretty much at length in the first podcast. So, he... Did that thing you do where you up the gore and the violence so you can work it down to what you want. Mm-hmm. You know, so he started at really high points and he tried to work it down. So that included uh, Omar Epps' character being stabbed in the ear. It was three times instead of the only one time that we get in the movie. Once is fine, but three was too many for the MPA. <laughs> um, and then a way more graphic extended death scene for Randy. I'm glad they didn't do that. Yeah, I am too. Randy's death is hard enough. Yeah, that was, yeah. <laughs> Very dramatic. Well, and to be honest with you, of all the deaths in this movie, which you could argue that they're all unnecessary, but Randy's was really unnecessary. But, I, but you know what? Horror movies, sometimes you have to kill your kill some of the characters you loved so you know the stakes are real, especially because they get knocked for stakes not being real. I'm sorry, did you just say... In a movie about a guy who dresses up with a ghost face, <laughs> we need to make the stakes real. I'm just saying. Okay. Just checking. So one of the things that's really interesting about this, though, is the MPAA actually granted him an R rating for one of the more violent cuts of the movie. And their reasoning was that the underlying message of the film was significant enough to warrant the violence. That, I, I don't have a joke for that. That's, that's horrible. We could go on and on, though, at length yeah. about how fucking stupid the MPAA is. That's just, honestly, that's ridiculous. But, okay. Yeah, I... I just don't... Okay. They're asinine. They make some very questionable decisions. For very questionable reasons. So, yeah, I'm not getting it. Yeah, I... I got nothing. <laughs> yeah, it's I the MPAA. honestly, it's one of those things yeah, where you just kind of sit there and you look at it at the face of it and you go and say... I mean, first of all, well, it's, again, this was only 20 years, this is only 22 years ago, so, you know, it's like, you know, fresh in all of our minds, but it's just, it's ridiculous. Right? Let's let's stop ripping the MPAA. No, we, we should, because they... But this is a podcast bullish. about Scream, not about how terrible the MPAA is. Well, you want to talk about franchises that are on a quest for more money? That would be the MPAA. <laughs> so... Let's move on to the next section, unless either of you have anything else for 
No. Vicky up behind the scenes? No? No. All right. So what's your favorite scary movie? Let's talk about it. Piece it together. So for me, just right out of the gate, one of the most unbelievable things about this movie is when Jada Pinkett Smith goes to get the popcorn in the beginning of the movie, she asks for a medium and they give her this gigantic bag. <laughs> and it was just comical to me because that would never happen. So... I think that the opening to the first scream is is way more iconic, obviously. But correct me if I'm wrong, but there's a really small part of me that I, I kind of like the opening to scream too, a little bit more. I love the opening. Like that's my favorite part of the movie, just because it's so like everyone is wearing a scream mask. Every single person in the movie theater. And of course now, looking at like 2018, that would totally be banned. Like it's actually banned now to wear clown costumes in certain towns just because of the movie It. Yeah, well... So I can't imagine people all going to see a movie with the exact same killer's costume on it and then expecting, like, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it would just be chaos. Well, and even after like The Dark Knight, um, and unfortunately, the shooting that took place at the movie theater, you, you're not really allowed to dress up for movie premieres, period, anymore, let alone as a character in the movie. Yeah, I wonder if this movie had anything to do with that, too. Just the idea of, like, all these people are dressed in this killer costume, anything can happen. I don't know. I, I, I tend to think that, just on the face of it... <clears throat> We, we now nowadays unfortunately we we put a lot of significance on stuff like this where you can go and you can take somebody and you can um, use that as a means to be able to hurt other people whether you're dressing up as the Joker or you're dressing up as Frankenfurter and Rocky Horror or you're doing whatever I just you know what we we condemn it but we also encourage it at the same time so it's I don't know. It's there's two two edges to the sword. Yeah, for sure. So one of the the fun little Easter eggs in it is that in the first scream, Tatum asks Sydney if they make a movie about you, who's going to play you? And she goes, "With my luck, they'd probably cast Tori Spelling." Well, in the stab, the movie within a movie, Tori Spelling is the person who plays Sydney. That was cute. It's a nice little callback. I, I love yeah. it. I also love that they address caller ID in this movie right away. It's like, I'm not answering the phone. Because <laughs> um, the first scream gave a lot of rise to the popularity of caller ID. And now I, I can't imagine not using caller ID. I well, scream the fuck out of my calls. Because caller ID is... That's, that's been what's, around since yeah, we that, were born. That's what, smart, that's what smartphone technology considers, you know, in advance. But it's been around for a very long time. Ever, you know, as, as soon as displays started showing up on phones, caller ID started to occur. So it's you know. Well, I mean, you talked about it. The, the first scream that played a big role in people adapting that, adopting it early. Sure. You know, in the, in the mid nineties. The, the crazy good. thing about the opening, though, is that like no one thinks it's, no one thinks that it's real. Everyone in the movie theater, once she's actually killed in front of the screen. Like, they, they're laughing at the movie, and then she's standing there dying, and no one knows. Well, until she falls over, right? Yes. Yeah, I I really like it. I really, really enjoy the opening to this movie. It's good. It is good. I mean, I just, it, you're right, Alex, though. It is kind of horrifying to think that 
you know, what your perception of real or not real is, is based on time of year and, and where you are, right? If you're in a movie theater or at a playground or whatever, just, it's, that's kind of scary. Yeah. So I mentioned earlier, but one thing that I absolutely hate about this movie, I think it's super cringy, is I hate the scene where Jerry O'Connell is singing on the table. Really, maybe, that's one of the that's one of the feel good moments of the film. How could you hate that? And I guess that I guess it really is the point though, is that it's supposed to be like a fun little campy. I actually enjoyed it. The scene that I hate is the play because it doesn't make any sense. Oh, that play was awful. <laughs> Wait. Oh my God, that was. You're right. Oh, it was quick terrible. question for you, Alexandria. Which play is worse, this play or the Stars Hollow musical? <laughs> They're about equal. I would say. Wow. <laughs> so that's a, that's something for anyone who's a Gilmore Girls fan out there. Alex and I love Gilmore Girls, and I, that, yeah. if you've seen the new season, you understand. I don't think I need to say anything more than Stars Hollow Musical. But yeah, the the play is very very confusing in this movie. But I actually have some notes on that. So the play is the Orestetia, Orestetia. It's an interest. I, I pretty. I'm, 100% positive I butchered how to say that. It's a Greek trilogy um, that focuses on a single female heroine. Her name is Cassandra. And the Scream trilogy is also <laughs> is also a tragedy that focuses around a single female heroine, Sydney. So it talks about how Cassandra's life is cursed by Apollo and all that good stuff. And Sydney's obviously is... Her tragedy is the entire series with you know, Ghostface haunting her. Yeah. I... I think it was supposed to be a nice little like hey here's I get this thing. it's playing homage to like what the what Sydney goes through but I'm sorry no one that went through a tragedy like that would actually be in a play about going through, <laughs> through a, tragedy a tragedy like, like that, that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that doesn't make any sense it, I, I just on it or or quite frankly you know unless you are a total nut for Greek mythology I'm guessing you don't get the, the, the shout out to, you know, a play that's, you know, or a trilogy of plays that's so, you know, random that very I, few people would get it. I think that the idea is that it's all about revenge and murder, and this movie's all about revenge and murder, but... Yeah, but at least Kiss Me Kate was <laughs> a movie about making the taming of the shrew. Why did yeah, I mean, at least there was something that made sense about it. Why didn't they just do the musical Cats? <laughs> I don't know. It's the same, you know, it could have been anything. I just, you know, pick any random musical. Yeah, I wasn't, I definitely was not a fan of that scene at all. I thought it was brutal. I love the sequel discussion that they have in class. With, uh, that was pretty with Randy that was pretty good. That was a really fun scene. There's a lot to like. Did you have anything that really stood out to you? Well, I did like the, I, I did like the scene where they're talking about sequels. The only problem is, is that it was a direct... It was a direct tie to when he jumps up when they're watching the movie in the first one, talking about all the different tropes yeah. and things you never do in well, a horror, you know, you shouldn't do in a horror film. I don't think so as much because there's also still the the rules. This movie still has the rules to survive a horror film. So the first movie has your rules to survive a horror film, and that is you don't have sex, you don't drink or do drugs, and you never say, I'll be right back, hello, or who's there? In this one, the rules successfully survive a sequel are the body count is always bigger, the death scenes are always way more elaborate, with way more blood and gore, and then he starts to describe the third role before Dewey interrupts him. He says, if you want your films to become a successful franchise, never, 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 and then he gets cut off. 
Well, that just shows that Hollywood doesn't know how to make a successful movie franchise. It's interesting <laughs> that he gets cut off, though, because he does get cut off. And he does get cut off. You're right. That's unfortunate. Apparently, though, there's... Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a trailer for this movie that has an extended scene and says, never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, assume that the killer is dead. Oh, interesting. Which is... Which is homage to his line in the end of the right. first movie, where he says they always come back to the life for one more scare. And then in this movie, when Sydney shoots Mrs. Loomis in the head... Yeah. <laughs> ...and tells her that she's not coming back. So, yeah, I think that it, it's... That scene really just fits into the spirit of what the movies are, which is, I think, it, I think at its core, the Scream franchise just really loves movies, and I think that they really love horror movies. I think they really, uh, I, the only thing I would disagree with you on from before is, is that I really do believe that this movie is a parody. You know, I understand the context of the film, but I really do think, because it, it, it definitely shouts out to movies that took themselves way too seriously before and, you know, kind of sends them up and makes it a little, you know, you, you, you can't watch those movies now without thinking about Scream in the back of your head. You know, because then you pick out all those things and you're like, oh, holy crap, they were right. Jeez. You know, that's just, I think that's one of the hangovers of the franchise is that, you know, all of a sudden now if you watch movies, you're picking up all the things the Scream pointed out. I think so, and I think that, I don't think it's full-on parody because I think on its own, Scream stands as a super effective slasher movie in an era where slasher movies were dying and dead and i think all of them stand out really well as that um separate from how meta it is and i think on that other level of it's very meta it's very funny it's very self-referential it's referential to all these other movies i think it works really well on that level too yeah but what do you think you, you can weigh in on this one I mean, I That's, think like, it's... What's your opinion on that? It's definitely meta. <laughs> the fourth one is the most meta, um, but we'll get to that later in <laughs> the next, or the fourth episode of the podcast. But I think it can stand alone as a horror movie. It's just a fun horror movie. It's very campy in a different sense. Not in the woods campy like most slasher flicks, but it does give that kind of humor that you need yeah i think what's the great thing about it is that it doesn't take itself too seriously like say you know halloween five or halloween six which are take itself too seriously sure um but i also don't think that it's like if you've ever seen friday the 13th the final chapter the movie i love it because it just sort of it's like you know what we are what we are. We are a movie where a man in a hockey mask runs around and just kills people, so, like, we're not even going to have a plot for this movie. Also, Corey Feldman. And I don't think it's it's that either. Okay. I don't know. I, I don't know. I just, you know what? One of the things that's very successful to me about this, about the franchise, is that it essentially takes the same plot and is able to integrate other movie plots into it. To, to kind of show you or expose you to all these different significant pieces and how 
They're either common. The one thing you get out of this franchise more than anything else is just how unoriginal these types of movies have actually become. Well, you know, and I, I, 100%. I appreciate that. In slasher movies in general, we're we're right around the 40th anniversary of my all-time favorite horror movie, uh, Halloween, and that one. I, you look at the slasher lineage and like Peeping Tom and Psycho in 1960, Halloween in 1978. And I think it's really until Scream that these movies become different. You know, that, that, that something separates them. I think that those are... Yes, there are other huge slasher films that are like cultural touchstones for the genre. Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, some of the Halloween sequels. But they're also sort of... With the exception of maybe Nightmare on Elm Street, which is another Wes Craven movie. They're all pretty much just copying right. Halloween. But they're upping the ante on the violence and the gore. Right. So I think it's really until this happens, and they're Scream in 1996, and the sequels, which are which are pretty good, that they break new ground for the genre. Mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. So something else I just have to say is that the soundtrack for this movie is just so fucking 90s. <laughs> and wow. I, in... In a way that just really, I was listening to it obviously while we were watching the movie. It's in there, and then I went up to, to look it up later and just. <sighs> okay, let's just. Dave Matthews, Sugar Ray, um, <laughs> it's just yeah. DJ Paul Edge. I don't even know who that is. Mm-hmm. Me either. Less than Jake. Eels Everclear. Okay. D'Angelo. Okay. It's rough. Yeah. So I love that, also, we were talking about how Tori Spelling would play Sydney in the movie within a movie. I love that David Arquette is played by David Schwimmer. Ross from Friends. Yeah, that was pretty... Yeah, that was... That was good. I, which just goes to show just how interchangeable some of these people could actually be. Because you could definitely see... Ross. Ross. In the actual <laughs> in the actual movie versus But it would be really movie. weird because it you would... see them as brother and sister in your mind if you've ever yeah. watched friends. Oh that's true. Yeah. <laughs> kind of interesting, yeah. So there's also that mid nineties movie talk show thing uh, that happens in the film and that reminded me a lot of the making of videos on HBO back in like the early two thousands, late nineties where you could flip on like a Saturday morning and they'd have the making of behind the scenes of a movie that was coming out. Yep. I used to love, love, love watching those. So, uh, back to the play, though, really quickly, as just horrific and terrible as that scene is, I do think it has one of the most effective scares of the whole series, which is where Ghostface is popping in and out when the play's happening. I think that that worked really well, but that's about the other thing about it. Yeah, it worked, but it could have worked if there were people that weren't trying to kill her and they were just dancing around her, too. Quite honestly, they could have been restaging Oklahoma and it would have worked fine. They didn't yeah. have to go... They didn't have to go to Greek mythology to come up with a play for them to be producing in college. But that's okay. Yeah. So, the cops of this movie, though, who leave Sydney when they're supposed to be guarding her, you know, in the library when Cotton Weary comes out, yes. it's just... I get it. Why... Although, Sydney does really try to get away from them, too, to talk to Cotton, so it's like, yes, they suck, but she also... (laughs) She didn't help. (laughs) Yeah, she just makes it so much harder on them. 
Yeah, I think I think Sydney's a really one of the things really interesting about her is that she's gonna do what she's gonna do anyway. So yeah. I don't know what that they would have done really to help her to get Cotton away from him until you know when they shoo him out. But well, they I'm still they, just like guys, why? <laughs> they they could have died earlier, but that's about it. I mean, they, quite frankly, I don't know what purpose they actually serve. But you know, I well, they're just they're bodies. Yeah, they're well, that they're red shirts, right? That's what they are. They're red shirts. They so what do we think about Cotton Weary's storyline? So there's all of that build up and all of that talk of him in the first screen, and this one he's out and he's there. He really wants to talk to Sydney, but it's to get famous. I like I like that take on his character as being somebody who yeah you would think that being locked up for a murder you didn't commit would be a horrifying experience, and then to turn him into a really I don't want to say he's a horrible guy, but he's just, you know, to have him turn around and think that he was going to make a lot of money off of being, you know, wrongly incarcerated. And, you know, he's after Sydney not to get back at her, but to use her as a cash cow so he can make money and become famous. Yeah. I think is a pretty cool, I, I, I did like that aspect of the movie. I thought that was kind of an interesting take on the character. Yeah, I really liked his character, and I like that you didn't know. Like, they, they left it very open-ended as to whether or not he could potentially be doing the killings. Because yeah. you're thinking... Well, until the just, end when they answer. Yeah, yeah, they do answer it, of course, but until that scene where he confronts her in the library, like you had just said, that scene kind of made it known to me that he wasn't the killer mm -hmm. in a way. Like, I just felt like they wouldn't have put that scene in there if he was, because right. it would be too obvious. Yeah. So, until then, you're thinking, there's a possibility that he just went mad and is recreating the killings because, in his mind, he thinks he should be the killer since he was wrongly incarcerated. So yeah. that's kind of what I was thinking when I first watched this movie. I think it makes sense. I think they definitely use him as really good misdirection. Because the whole time you're thinking, well, Cotton Weary wasn't the killer in the first one, but Cotton's going to be the killer now. Um, so they use that, they, they, and they tip their hand like that a few times. But I like that they didn't go down that road and make him just the actual killer, because I think it would have made for a, a boring ending, basically. That's funny, because I actually never saw him... He, he was never a suspect in my mind watching the movie. Really? Cause, yeah, because I thought it would have been way too obvious to make okay. him the killer. It just would have been... As soon as, he, as soon as you knew that he was something more than just a name they were bringing up as reference to the first movie, and Lee Schreiber's character actually had a lot to do and a lot to say, it just became way too obvious to make him the killer. Yeah. So, for me, it was, it was a question of which one of the friends... Um, did you was, guess? Did, did I did I guess? I act, there was there was a part of me for for a, a short period of time that thought it was Timothy Oliphant, you know, because he was the one that was trying to act the most normal. But then I thought back to you know the original Billy Loomis and you know Shaggy being so you know such a lunatic in that movie. Shaggy, <laughs> <laughs> you know? so yeah, Billy Loomis and then yeah, 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 you know. So then I was like, well, friend. you know what, maybe you know maybe not. You know, so I thought that was that was handled really well. But Weave Schreiber's character was never a suspect for me in this. Interesting. So how do we feel about the actual reveal of the killers, though? I really love the idea of taking almost that Friday the 13th piece of things and ripping off that the mother is the killer, and then also taking in the, you know, Marty. 
I took had out a, one. I had a real one of my one of the things, and I and I thought a lot about this before we did the podcast. One of the mm-hmm. things that really bothered me about this movie was the 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 killers. Not so much how they're revealed, but just who they chose to have being the the, the killers in the movie. Why? Well, I in I never connected. Um, the reporter with being Billy Loomis's mom. I, I didn't never, either. I never I made that. It that played just, really well. Yeah, it was just well, I and mean, I don't remember her being in the first film. So, she wasn't. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, you never, you never had a point of reference to connect her to the, to the Billy Loomis to begin with. So that was kind of out of left field for me and kind of contrived. But I, I just as I as I thought back on the movie and how it was structured, a revenge plot wasn't. That's not what I would have. I would have thought of. I I, I would have come up with something else. And I just I don't know. I was. I always felt like they got to the end and they're like, okay, well we got to pick a killer. Let's draw names out of a hat, and this is what we came up with. I didn't feel that way at all because I really thought that Mrs. Loomis's motives made sense to me. Obviously, Sydney kills her son, but also Sydney's mother slept with her husband. And to me, having both of those reasons. Not saying it excuses anyone's actions. I'm just saying like, I understand. Wow, really? <laughs> Please, I, kill whoever you want. I agree, though. I think it, the motive make, makes a lot of sense. And I like that she was a little out of left field, like you were saying. But it does make sense that a mother who just lost her son and her husband all in the same year and found out like all this crap <laughs> was happening... I think she would go a little crazy. She um, want revenge. Yeah, and she went for the revenge. What I don't like is like she did play that kind of mousy like character the whole time. I feel like someone who was that unhinged probably wouldn't be able to hold it together that well. Or that long. Yeah. Right. Like this takes this takes place over a couple of weeks, right? I don't know. If like I don't month? think it's a couple weeks. But I don't I know what the timeline is for the either. actual film. I, it's definitely not as clear as it was in the first screen. Yeah. I just assumed it was over like a few days, like two or three days. But it just I'm feels not. like it's longer to me. I, I don't know. It was like a week or two. Yeah. It could be. Maybe I'm the crazy one. Well, Alex and I have always thought that, but <laughs> <laughs> that's why we don't let you near any sharp objects. So you had mentioned. Somebody had mentioned earlier when we were talking before this about David Arquette's character, Dewey, and how he should have stayed dead. <laughs> I love how, Dewey. I love Dewey, but how do we feel about that excuse of the knife went into some old scar tissue? Uh, it's it's like the magic bullet theory. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm, sure, I'm sure there's some other ways to come Park. up with, you know, now we're coming up with inventive ways on how people aren't killed. Which I think is, I welcome that. That's actually kind of neat, yeah. you know? We've come up with inventive ways to kill people. Now we're coming up with inventive ways not to kill them. It's the, it's the anti-final destination. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> but I think they need Dewey there. Like, they need, if they're going to kill Randy, then they need Dewey. Because one of them needs to be in the yes. third movie. Because if they're not, those are the two, to me, those are the two most lovable characters. That if you kill both of them, it's just kind of torture to the audience well i guess the other issue for me too. what well, is torture to see randy kill because randy I, I think everybody's favorite character is either sydney or randy yeah I, I would agree randy was a good guy and he was just he was dorky but he was a he was an adorable dorky 
you know, and I just, and that's why we were, we were talking before we, we went on about this, and I just really feel like of all the deaths in the movie, his was the most unnecessary, because there was just no reason to kill him off as a character. But I, I really I, stand by the idea of, like, there needs to be some sort of stakes. It's a movie. But you need to be able to... The ending shouldn't just feel so predetermined and pre-contrived. You should feel as if your characters are in jeopardy. Otherwise, why are you watching the movie? Yeah, but regardless of regardless of who's getting whacked in the in the film, the you know the point of this is that it is already predetermined. It is already you already know that there's going to be a body count. You're going to know that there's going to be at least one killer. Maybe you know in, in the case of Screamers, always seems to be two or more. Maybe one. two. Maybe a third one. Maybe a third one. <laughs> we don't know. But I mean, a lot of this is already predetermined. So it's not about, you know, getting caught up in the lies of the characters. It's about how creatively can we get to the end. Well, and that's also just a whole other, the whole other uh, conversation about the debt, like the journey to your destination is more important than the destination itself. But I appreciate the destination. Watching this movie for the first time, I, when we watched it together, mm-hmm. I've obviously seen it a couple times. Right. But to me, it was... I wasn't 100% sure. I thought that there was something up with Timothy Oliphant's character, but I had no idea about Mrs. Loomis. And Yeah. But... To be fair, when I saw this, I think the very first time I saw this was even before I saw Friday the 13th. So wow. that wasn't even a question for me. I didn't even think about that. Mm-hmm. So it, it kept me guessing originally watching it for the first time. And that's fair. But I now being more aware of horror and horror tropes, maybe not as much. Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay. I agree. That's a conversation killer right there. Good job. <laughs> Does anyone have anything else about the movie? Anything that really jumped out to them they just want to talk about or mention? Yeah, I yeah, the what gave me a lot of heartburn um, about it was that <laughs> and I really I I say this saying that this is also a movie so you know you should probably shut up kevin because it's not that big a deal but the whole thing with the accident and Ghostface being knocked out in the car yeah right and they're in the oh. back seat and they're crawling out right and he's obviously knocked out because sydney literally crawls over him to get out of the car well Edward and Haley's gonna yeah. crawl out how do you not because there's plenty of time, the way the scene is shot, to take the killer's mask off. He's knocked out. Why? I, I realize you have 30 more minutes of the movie. <laughs> so that's probably a good reason why you don't do that. They didn't I'm want just... to release this direct-to-DVD. It couldn't be an 80-minute movie you find in Acme. But couldn't <laughs> like... they have had like, her take off the mask and then not shown us? You know? That like, would have been... That yeah, sense. that would have made sense. I would have bought that. But. I, I think that because Sydney, though, is your main vehicle for watching the movie, we're watching a lot of it through her eyes. That would have felt ridiculous that, like, oh, she knows more than I know. You know what I mean? Like, you never watch a movie where everybody knows everything, and it's the end of the movie. But there's a lot of stuff that you could have done with that after the fact, because now the killer really does have a reason to go chasing after Sydney, because you know what? Quite frankly, she knows who he is. So the or chase, the, the she, movie winds up being a chase scene. At or the end. she, because we don't know who was in the car. We don't, and that's part of the that's part of the challenge for me with the with the movie was where I don't know, especially if you're Sydney. If you're Sydney, how is not the 
first thing you do is take that guy's well, mask off. What and also, like, why didn't she kill him there? Thank you. He's the killer. Yeah. He was knocked out. She's got access to two guns from two dead cops. How does she not pick one of them up and shoot him in the head? I, I don't understand. And I think what makes that scene more frustrating is that she runs away and then she stops and is like, I have to go back and yeah, do this now. And absolutely. then that gets her friend killed. Right. Which is just like... Who's like the whole time is like, why the fuck are you doing this? Stop. You could have done it when you yeah. were crawling out of the car. On accident, you would have taken his mask off crawling over him. Yeah. And you didn't do it. It's just crazy. Yeah, I... Yeah, that seems that, very frustrating. That scene is a little ridiculous. It is a little ridiculous. And it's just... I, that's... Sorry, I don't mean to drum but, on. But overall, it I really... just drove me crazy. Yeah, I... I'm going to hold that thought. Because we're going to move on to our next section. Yes. These days... You gotta have a sequel. Yes. Okay. And we're gonna talk just really quickly about you know, the Rotten Tomatoes score of the movie and whether or not we enjoyed the movie and sure. And what's next? So originally, this movie was supposed to open against uh, Tomorrow Never Dies, the James Bond movie, and Titanic, but both of those movies actually moved their release dates to not have to open against Scream Two. That's ironic, considering Titanic. Titanic was the biggest blockbuster of its day. Yeah, for sure. So, this scored an 82% from critics, hmm. but it's a 51% from fans. That's, that's surprising. That, that's very interesting. Yeah, I would have I would have thought it would have been the other way, to be honest with you. Yeah. Right? I would have thought critics would have given it a 50%, and the fans would have loved it. Especially if you loved the first one. Actually, I looked today, and for some reason it is different. It is 56 from when I looked at it a couple days ago. Wow. I just look, I'm, looking, I'm looking at it right, right, right now. I pulled it up. Wow. It's a 56 right now. Fifty. It was 51 a couple days ago. So wow. I'm actually kind of curious how that changed. It's kind of weird. <laughs> okay. But, yeah, I think that that's... I agree. I would have seen that flipped. I feel like critics probably would have been, you're retreading too much past yeah. ground versus fans but i really do think though in recent years this movie's become a lot better received there's a lot more context to watch the film through than when it was first released too right so i think you oh without without you, doubt. you, you look at it through a different lens now than you did 22 years ago what did you what did you think of it overall so dead we'll start with you kevin i i didn't um I liked this more than I liked the first one, but Why? I liked I liked this one more because I had seen the first one, so I had some ideas to what to expect from the second one. Okay. And because of that, because of where my expectations were, I had a much better understanding of what they were trying to do and what I was going to see. And I thought, for the most part, I thought they delivered, and I thought they they made a pretty decent film in that regard. Um, but like I said, there were there were obviously pieces of this movie I had major problems with. You know, the cafeteria scene, um, a knocked out killer that nobody does anything with, um, Dewey surviving what should have been a ridiculously fatal encounter with the killer. And, you know, I just, there were some things that kind of gave me some heartburn, but overall I liked the movie better than the first one, actually. But yeah. See, I liked the first one more, but I think this one, I like that they continued the storyline. Like, mm -hmm. sequels sometimes 
just go a completely different direction and don't include important characters or don't have the full cast back or something that messes it up and this sequel has all the cast that's relevant back and they play into all those storylines and give you a lot of misdirection which was important to me like in a horror movie that you already know mostly what's going to happen because the first one lays it all out for you then you still had that shock element in this one that's really that's a really good point too yeah that makes sense yeah and for me i think I really do. I, I love this movie. I think it's it's one of the better horror sequels that exist. Because uh, you look at the horror landscape, and especially when you're looking at slasher movies, and the sequels generally aren't good. Maybe they're fun, but they're but they're not good. And I thought this one was it worked on a lot of different levels. We mentioned earlier about I think it's it works really well with the parody and the meta-ness, and I think it works really well as a slasher film um, as a continuation of Sydney's story. I think it, it works fantastic. And keeping context in, we, kn- we know that this movie was thrown together in a year. Mm-hmm. That they had a year to, after this movie was, re- after the first screen was released, to write, film, cast, do everything. Market, Scream 2. And then in the middle of that, the script, the script gets leaked online and they have to do rewrites and they're finishing it on set. I, I think it's immensely impressive what, they, what the end product was, considering... I don't think it's I don't think it's a stretch to say that some of this movie was a nightmare to make because of it. Of factors not related to ca- you know the cast. I no, I that's agree. impressive. No, I, I, I it's absolutely impressive. You know, technically speaking to make this movie is you know pretty remarkable given its backstory, but mm-hmm. I would also ask what would be I guess considered in the in the business an ignorant question by going and saying why did you have to rush it all? Once you knew the script was released, why did you have to feel the need to go and compress everything down into a very into the same time frame when you could have just gone and said, look, because of this, we're going to push it out six months and we're going to take our time and we're going to construct a film that, you know, meets what we needed to do. Why did you, why did they have to do that? You just set up a couple of pins that I'm going to knock down real quick. Yeah. I'm going to say it's because there's a quest for more money. Fair enough. And and the, but you would have made that money in six months, too. I think you... If it was six months later, you would have made... Sometimes the, you, know, you want to strike while the, while the iron's hot. And there was a lot of buzz around it. The word of mouth was really good. Keep in mind, again, Scream wasn't this instant success. It was a lot of word of mouth. Mm-hmm. So people are still finding out about it. They're still watching it. And I think that they capitalized as soon as they could. You know, it's like when a band has a huge first album. Mm-hmm. And then... You're, they're always told you have to rush into the studio for the second one and get it out, and that's why there's a sophomore slump a lot of the time. Yeah, I think they avoided a so- I think they avoided the sophomore slump. I really do. They did no, but I think that's from the the, the talent on the back end, the director, the producer, and the writer, and the ca- act, you know the team was able to actually put together something that was pretty special given the circumstances, and I think that's the most remarkable thing about the movie. And the cast is fantastic. I, I have no problem saying that my favorite. Um, quote-unquote final girl or my favorite slasher film protagonist is hands down Sydney Prescott. I think she's the most developed. I think she's the most intriguing. Um, she's the most psychologically I, damaged woman in the history of movies. But she's, she's seen everyone she knows killed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's ridiculous the amount of trauma that this woman has been through in, what, arguably... Two movies? Three years. 
And she's very strong, too, yeah, as a character. Yeah, very, very, very strong presence. And I think Neb Campbell knocks it out of the park, though. No, she's great. She's fantastic. Yeah, she's great. So, and you're saying this now, but boy, oh boy, wait till we get to Scream 4 <laughs> for you to be saying this. Um, so, next one that's up is Scream 3. So, we were talking about that super rush, super short production turnaround from Scream 1 to 2. Yep. Scream 3 is released in 2000. February of 2000. So, Scream 2 was released in December of 97. You're, you're really talking... A three-year cycle. Uh, two years. Two and a half years. Um, and boy, oh boy, do I have some thoughts. We'll get into that. For Scream 3 <laughs> that we're going to get into. I look um, forward to that. should be fun. Yeah. So... Last piece that we ended with last time that I really would love to end with this time. Favorite kill scene. For me, it's got to be Jada Pinkett Smith in the movie theater, followed closely by Omar Epps through the bathroom stall. Yeah, the movie theater kill scene was really... like I mean, we talked about how creepy it was that nobody knew that she was even dying until the last second. Like, that made the... It was very impactful in the beginning yeah. that made the movie, like, immediately. Uh, I absolutely agree. Jada Pinkett Smith's killing in that movie is chilling. Yeah. Because she, she's it, it, asking for help she's and everyone's for help just... And everyone's laughing and cheering her on and saying what a great job she's doing dying. Yeah. <laughs> it's like... Which is kind of what we're yeah. doing right yeah, now. Yeah, it's kind of like what we're doing right now. It's like, go! <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think it's... I, most inventive by far. Oh, it's, it might it be awesome. my favorite one of the whole series, honestly. It's a, it's a. There's some good ones in four, but that's pretty. That's a pretty chilling thing, though, to think that you know something like that's happening to you, and no one's going to take it seriously. And no, well, not just that no one's going to help them, but everyone's going to watch it. Yeah, and they're just going to think you're you're fucking with them, right? And that's just not just, care. That that's horrifying. That's like. The, the, the Tom Cruise character in that movie he made with Jamie Foxx where Tom Cruise is a contract killer and he says his greatest he tells her he run, if collateral. remember this collateral where he, he tells Jamie Foxx his greatest fear is being dead on a subway and nobody knowing about it he, he was something he read in the newspaper yeah. and what happens is is that his character dies and he's riding the subway for you know like for a day and nobody knows he's dead wow. right so it just that's one of those things where you know, if I gotta go, I do not want to go in a movie, movie theater <laughs> where everybody is like, "Go, <laughs> this is awesome." That's horrible. And honestly, that just that whole I, I, yeah, I keep coming back to it how great that opening is. But yeah, it's good. So this was number two. Yep. I think there's always a quest for more money. Do they stop at two, Dad? I doubt it. No, they absolutely. <laughs> Otherwise. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking about it. <laughs> there are... So, much like the movie itself... <laughs> there's always more money to be made. There's always a quest for more money. And I can't wait to talk about Scream 3 with all of you next month. Same bat time. Same bat place. Same bat channel. Until then, thank you for listening. Like and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to reach out to us, you can reach out to us on Twitter at... at QFMMPod or write us an email at, at QFMMPod at gmail.com. Until then, I'm Mitch. I'm Kevin. I'm Alexandria. Thank you, and we'll see you next month. Happy Halloween, everybody. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.